You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, an undocumented American, because we're all strangers now in our own land. Uh, This Wednesday afternoon, July 25th, and, you know, Wednesday afternoon is always kind of midweek. Things are really moving quickly. As you could see from my Twitter feed, those of you who follow me at RM Conservative, um, the CR Twitter feed, the work from my colleagues, myself, very, very busy on many, many fronts. I, I don't have time to get to most of these issues today, but go through my columns in chronological order and you'll see whether it's Obamacare, immigration, the courts, all the big hot button issues, budget, we're being screwed over. And there's almost no movement focused on it. You know, two polls came out today showing Democrats with a D plus 12 advantage. We're not getting anything for it. We have no counter narrative. We have no message. We have a band and all the accoutrements without a, without a melody. We have icing without a cake. There's no agenda. Everyone's trying to own the libs while our own party is helping the libs own us. Today we're going to have Joseph Humeyer on, a return guest, one of my favorite guests, to talk about Latin America, Russia, Iran, and how it ties into our border crisis and why we should care. But I just first want to take off a couple of notes from, from the many things I, I'm following. And again, I, I can't even cover everything. My writings are on this program, and that's why you guys got to follow me on Twitter for the minute-by-minute minute, you know stuff I put out um, at, RM, at RM Conservative, that is Red Meat Conservative. Because, yeah, we offer the red meat on the issues that matter. And, you know, obviously, we've reached a point where the courts are sacking our sovereignty. Everything that we fought for 30 years to block a new amnesty, and we succeeded, doesn't matter because the courts are saying you can't deport anyone. Temporary protected status is permanent status. I have an article about that. Trump's a racist, so he can't enforce immigration law and indeed must violate immigration law. The lie about the border crisis and the separation of children when we really, it turns out, they are self-separating. So I've been yelling for months, yelling for months, for years, that the DHS appropriation bill, that funding bill, is the one avenue for us to address all this stuff. Where Congress could defund sanctuary cities. Block the asylum policies, block the courts, completely reorient our immigration priorities. This is truly what Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, that the House having the power of the purse is the last way to redress our grievances as as people. Yet right now, they're meeting in the House Appropriations Committee, marking up the DHS appropriation bill. And rather than 
the subject of conversation being, how could we stop the stolen sovereignty, the fleecing of America, the drug crisis, the harm to the American people that this is causing? You know, there's a great Washington Examiner article out that is echoing what we've been putting out for months, um, quotes from CBP top officials. Uh, everything Brandon Judd said on this show, what I've been saying, that the UACs, the family units, the Central Americans are being used by the border, by the drug cartels as diversions to bring it all in, which is why we had this crisis coinciding with the rise of the Central Americans in 2014. No, none of that is being addressed. The entirety of the discussion is over what to do for illegal aliens, how to further incentivize and create magnets to better their stay here so more will come. And this is bipartisan. Nobody is speaking out for us. So from what I'm hearing so far is that they passed an amendment to block deportation of any DACA recipient who served in the military, that they want to set up child trauma centers at ICE detention facilities. Then there's evidently an amendment from Kevin Yoder, a Republican from Kansas. I'm not sure if it passed yet, but this is ongoing. I'll I'll update you all tomorrow. An amendment to block Jeff Sessions' credible fear policy. Probably the best thing the administration has done to finally address the core of the problem is to explicitly mandate that the asylum adjudicators at the border, not the immigration judges, because we don't want it to go to that stage, right in the field, we categorically dismiss anyone who doesn't have an individualized claim of persecution at the hands of the government. If you're just fleeing general poverty and violence, that's not asylum. And also, the second part of that was to take into account the fact that they came illegally with the drug cartels rather than at the points of entry. So I'm hearing that this amendment would block that policy. It's a Republican, obviously, with the help of the Democrats. And then finally, the one amendment that seemed to kind of address a problem, one of the problems of stolen sovereignty, actually implicitly makes it worse. So one of the problems happening now is that the courts are mandating abortions for these teenage girls. Often they're older than 18 coming uh, across the border. And as we've noted before, it's not just incidental. They're actually coming. It's a magnet. They're coming because they can't get abortions there. It's not just like they're coming here and then they happen to get pregnant. No, they're coming to have abortions. So, you know, they come here for welfare. They come here for all the bennies. Now they're coming here for abortion. We have abortion chain migration. We're, we're now a refuge for people um, coming from countries where they don't allow elective abortions. So they have an amendment barring abortions at ICE facilities unless the mother's life is in danger, unless they could claim that they're raped, which they all do. But here's the kicker. Unless the courts rule what we're doing unconstitutional. Let that seep in. So for months I've been noting that Congress has the full authority to strip the courts of jurisdiction, certainly the lower courts, and that the easiest way to do that rather than um, trying to pass a new legislation, which we can't get anything passed, is to use a budget bill and Trump to leverage his veto threat against any budget that doesn't contain that provision. Guess what? They're addressing it and explicitly inviting the courts in to 
overturn it. Think about that. The entirety of the problem with abortion chain migration, it's not the executive branch. It's not ICE. They don't want to do it. It's the courts. And they're saying, yeah, we're stopping abortions unless the courts say you have to do it. Need I say more? Need I say more? But anyway, I've gone on long. And, uh, you know, this is the problem. We have all of talk radio is caught in the sex tapes and the Trump recording. But where's the policies? I'm not saying there's no importance to anything anyone else does that I'm not focused on, that's not policy-oriented, but you need so you need that. What's the point of everything else if you don't have an agenda? And if, in fact, our movement, the rhinos are doing their thing, Trump is doing his thing with the tariffs, and now the bailout for the tariffs with the farmers, passing the farm bill, all the debt stuff we spoke about last time, horrible stuff on health care. <clears throat> You know, on Obamacare, on Obamacare, okay? Think about this. The courts are, are blocking our civilization. They're striking down everything Trump wants to do. They're saying Trump must continue all the elective or downright illegal policies of previous administrations. Finally, we get one benefit from judicial supremacy where courts blocked certain aspects of Obamacare bailouts. For insurance companies. One of them was called risk adjustments. I don't have time to get into that now. But that's the one thing the Trump administration is trying to find a fix for. And they announced that they fixed the formula. So now they're going to go through with it despite the fact that we had a court throw it out. That's the one time they're going to stand up to the courts. And this is what happens when you don't have a conservative movement. Then you don't have a Republican Party doing the right thing, and you don't have Trump doing the right thing on a lot of issues either. I think if we did have a movement directing him, seven out of ten times he would do the right thing. If nothing else, out of fear that he's going to lose his base. But we have a vanity movement. No substance. No substance whatsoever. Now, if you're wondering how I'm able to have the strength that God gives me to focus on so many disparate issues, I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from purple mattresses. You got to get a good night's sleep. On a day where I used to get a bad night's sleep and wake up tired, I knew my brain wouldn't work properly and I couldn't properly fight for liberty that day. But guess what? There is a mattress out there that strikes the perfect balance. Now, usually when... You wake up tired. That means you were tossing and turning. You weren't getting a comfortable rest, and that's because you had a bad pillow, you had a bad mattress. Well, Purple, purple Purple.com, they make cutting-edge, invented by rocket scientist technology, not this dumb memory foam, that balances the firmness of support but the softness of feel. So it keeps everything supported while comfortable. I love soft uh, soft cushions. It's Also, it's very breathable, so it's cool at night. You know, we have one of those marriages where my wife is always cold and I'm always hot, so I really appreciate it. Um, and it also it just gives you this zero-gravity-like feel. So it works in any sleeping position. I usually like sleeping on my side, but wherever wherever it is, it works. So I want you guys to go to purple.com. You get a 100-night risk-free trial. If you think I'm BSing you, well, if you're not fully satisfied, you could return it, free refund, 
um, free shipping and returns. And obviously, if you if you like and want to keep it, it's backed by a 10-year warranty. Um, but in order to get your 10% discount, in addition to this week's free gift with the purchase of a mattress, you got to go to purple.com and issue promo code Daniel at checkout. That's purple.com code Daniel. It's the only way you get your 10% gift to get the best sleeping experience at night. And uh, I had a good night's sleep last night, and that's why I'm fired up. I just need other people. Uh, you know, maybe we need to give the rhinos and phony conservatives purple mattresses. Uh, maybe they'll actually, uh, you know, deal with the right things. But then again, you know, that takes uh, that takes acumen, and we just don't have that. You know, it's a lot easier to have 90 seconds of talking points and shop around on Fox News about the latest vanity. But to actually study the issues, conjure up strategies— we have none of that. Now, one of these issues is Russia, but tying into Iran, China, Hezbollah, tying into our border crisis, and that is foreign policy in our own backyard. So Joseph Meyer has been on this show before, has rapidly become the Latin American expert for the conservative conscience. He's the executive director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. He served in the Marines. He's served in a variety of uh, different counterintelligence capacities. So he's really got the um, military background, the economic background, and certainly the counterintelligence, uh, counterterrorism uh, background. And you know, you think uh, obviously, well, if you're into terrorism, it's all about the Middle East. Well, no. <laughs> There's a reason his main focus is Latin America, which is much closer to home, and that's why we wanted to bring him on today. Hey, Joseph, how you doing? And thanks for coming back. Good, Daniel. Always a pleasure to be on your show. I'm always happy to, to weigh in. I know. I want to have you on like every week. There's This stuff just keeps <laughs> blowing up. And before you came on, I was talking about, obviously, the border problems and you know the fact that it's now coming to light, something we reported on a long time ago, that the migration is not organic. It's all orchestrated by the drug cartels, and they actually use the flow of Central Americans as a diversion to bring in drugs and MS-13 and things like that. But what we're also seeing is that they're bringing in even higher-valued uh, smuggling, which is the SIAs, the Special Interest Aliens, a.k.a. Middle Easterners, coming in. There's been an uptick every time we have – uh, you know, Central American um, surge of, of family units, UACs coming over, and we're seeing them in the Laredo sector. Particularly, they're reporting on Bangladeshi, several hundred the past couple of months coming in. And you have a thesis that this is not just, you know, you can't just focus on Mexico and the northern triangle of three Central American countries. That particularly from the national security standpoint of terrorism coming through the border, there's a layer behind that. Could you describe that a little bit, which countries are at play, how the Middle Easterners come here, um, and who's behind that? Yeah, Daniel. So um, essentially, this is uh, this is something that the Department of Homeland Security has already been very vigilant at trying to detect and decipher exactly how this works. And they They've done so much work on this over the last decade that they, they, they've coined an acronym that's been around longer, but it's become more popular, which is called Special Interest Alien. I'm sure you've covered it on your show, SIAs. 
And so SIA has become a buzzword within the national security establishment because it's looking at essentially uh, immigrants, irregular immigration that is coming from a collection of 35 countries throughout the world, but primarily in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa that are heavily uh, dense with terrorist presence. So we're talking about Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Algeria, Somalia, all, all the places where you've ever heard of a terrorist group, they're on the list. And what we're seeing is there's a phenomenon of SIA migration that's coming into Latin America that's increased drastically over the last uh, five to 10 years. The biggest data point that you really can wrap your head around why, why I think this is not uh, by accident, that this is very strategic, is that overall um, um, illegal immigration has gone down over the last decade. However, uh, SIA immigration has gone up. So basically the overall n- numbers of, of the amount of uh, illegal migrants that are coming across the border, uh, particularly south uh, in Texas and, and the southwest border, uh, has gone uh, down. The, the percentage of how many of those are coming from uh, one of these 35 countries from the Middle East, Africa, or Asia has gone up. About 75% of them now come from that. Uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security classifies them as OTMs, other than Mexicans, and within them is the SIAs. And my point is that, that if you want to look at the routes, and you want to look at the, 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 the manner in which they're coming, it doesn't start with Central America. It start, well, obviously, it starts in, in, in the Eastern Hemisphere abroad, but when its points of entry into Latin America are mostly in South America. They're in Brazil. They're in Colombia. They're in Venezuela. They're even in Peru. Uh, and they're in, in South America where they find ways to, uh, to funnel north, some going through land corridors, passing straight through the Darien Gap, which is between Brazil and Colombia, and getting into Central America, and others taking uh, small boats and fast boats and, and, and landing on the shores of Central America. And then once they get there, the smugglers are, are, are well in place to move them all the way up to the, next, uh, the U.S. border. And, you know, we had Brandon Judd on the show a couple weeks ago. He's the president of the Border Patrol Council. And, you know, his point was that pound per pound, when you say, hey, all right, we apprehended 50,000 aliens this uh this month, that by definition means that there's roughly 50,000 others you're not apprehending, and pound per pound, they're going to be worse. So if you extrapolate that to the SIA population where you know the um, smugglers are – they're getting paid 28,000, 30,000 a pop for those, they're going to do a much better job to ensure that they go undetected. So again, there's a few hundred Bangladeshis we say we caught the last couple months. You better believe that there's hundreds more, if not thousands more, we're not catching. I see you put out a data point here. I want you to explain a little bit more um, Mm -hmm. where this is coming from and why we should care and how this ties into the civil unrest in Venezuela and and, uh, Nicaragua now. Um, 221,000 names of foreign nationals in Venezuela's immigration system. And, yeah, so that yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. No, no, and just and just the other thing is, you say there's 8.5 million names added to Venezuela's immigration system since the audit of 2003. What does that mean? That basically means that you know the same concerns that we had in Syria when we were dealing with that refugee crisis, which was basically we could not uh, vet or verify the identity of the refugees. There, there was, we do not have uh, an embassy in Syria. We do not have a, a sufficient uh, human intelligence presence in the country, no cooperation with the, the Assad government that could allow us to really you know, verify and say that this is a legitimate economic or humanitarian refugee and they're leaving for legitimate purposes. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, and, and we couldn't, we couldn't 
you know, tell the American people in public that this this is in a terrorist under under uh, a refugee cover. That same conversation extends to Venezuela because the folks that put the system in place in Venezuela, namely the Cubans and the Iranians, use the same tactics that they did in Syria. So what they've done is that through the probably since about 2002, I'd say is the starting point of this, they reformed Venezuela's immigration system to make everything electronic. But as they done as they did that, they used that opportunity to to embed a bunch of names into the system, uh, names of, of foreigners, uh, mostly from Syria, Lebanon, and from the Middle East, Iraq, Arab Arab countries. And then what they did is they attached those names. And they created identities for them in places like Syria and Lebanon. So I'll give you an example. There could be an individual that his name could be uh, Jose Torres, right, uh, in the Venezuelan immigration system. And he would have a, a second surname that might be uh, uh, an Arab or, or, or Muslim, like Jose Torres uh, Khalil. And then he would have an identity in Syria that would be that would match in terms of his, his biographical information, but wouldn't match in terms of his name. So that allows people to move under different false identities, which has been a tremendous concern. I mean, when they come to Venezuela, if they even come to Venezuela, the, the biggest concern isn't so much that they just have a passport. They, they have a complete cover, uh, you know, property records, identities, uh, birth certificate. So you have a person that says he's Venezuelan and he, in many cases, maybe never even stepped foot in Venezuela. And he pops up in Mexico or he, he pops up in, in, in Guatemala. That, that was the biggest concern is the creation of dual identities that snap link uh, the Middle East to Venezuela uh, and allowed the, the, Venezuela, the, the Venezuelan government enabled these individuals to have a complete cover and concealment towards their movement. Now, that, that is the, the, one of the individuals that's been implicated in that scheme is a gentleman named Tarek Alaysami. Now, you would think that's a Syrian, but he's actually a Venezuelan. He's the Venezuelan. He was until recently the Venezuelan vice president. He's now a minister of production and mining. But this individual... Uh, is one of the most powerful people, if not the most powerful man in Venezuela of Syrian Lebanese origin. And he, his family, in both in Syria and Lebanon, have orchestrated this scheme, this immigration scheme, with the Iranians. So this is a very concerted strategy to basically create a cover platform and a cover mechanism that allows them to move their operatives, uh, including Hezbollah, Hamas, and whoever else, all throughout Latin America with uh, undetected uh, by by U.S. and regional authorities. And, and this is really how the general immigration crisis merges with terrorism and national security because you have the perfect cover with the whole crisis of bogus asylum claims from primarily El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras in the north. But you're saying you have south of, of those – of the northern triangle – um, where they're coming from the Middle East, they have a seamless cover, particularly in Venezuela, with the relations between the two countries. The the you know and you, you were on the show last time talking about just the historical, economic, cultural um, ties, and now they have between their immigration systems, they have a lot of cover. Um, an estimated ten thousand foreign nationals from SIA countries were provided with Venezuelan ID documentations. So yeah, and that the- that's a low number, Dana. That 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 ten thousand number. That was given by a former director of Venezuela's immigration system. Their system's called SIMET. So the former director of SIMET, who's now in Florida, uh, also in, uh, uh, in exile, in, in, you know, in asylum, he gave that number of 10,000. But the re- reality is it could be a lot more. We really don't know. Nobody knows exactly how many identification documents we're giving to Middle Easterners. Uh, it, 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 uh, it's an open-ended question. And, and you mentioned uh, when I reached out to you, I said, hey, you know, I'm seeing a lot of Bangladeshis crossing. You said a lot of them might not even be Bangladeshis. 
No, no, we don't. We don't know who all these individuals are. I mean, they come with uh, irregular paperwork, uh, fraudulent identities. It's very difficult. Guatemala right now is is being inundated with this. They're getting all kinds of uh, Bangladeshis, uh, Somalis, Pakistanis, and you know, some of them. Like I'll give you an example. They recently, uh, you know, the Guatemala immigration authorities. I had a conversation with some of the folks there, and they were talking about um, Bangladeshi, so to speak, coming into. Um, um, you know, Guatemala, but they were speaking Farsi, you know, so that's, <laughs> you know, they don't speak much Bangladeshi and Farsi. And so they, they, they've had this situation. And Guatemala is the most important transit point. I mean, the most important, if we want to get, you know, really up as far north as we want to get, as far north as I would be comfortable as a U.S. citizen dealing with our immigration problem would be the Guatemala-Mexico border. When it gets to our border, I get really too nervous because I think that's way too late. The Guatemala-Mexico border is, is is a very is much more porous border than ours. It's very porous border, and that's the one that we really we want to concentrate resources. Uh, that would be the last line of defense. The first line of defense should go further in South America, but the Guatemalans are aware aware of this, and they're trying to cooperate with authorities. But you know they have limited budgets and limited sure. uh, capabilities as well, and their own government's under attack by the UN for all kinds of corruption cases and things. So they're they're, they're dealing with their own politics in the country. But I'll give you an example. I mean, I don't know if this is publicly known. I imagine it's not. But you know, over the last uh, year. Uh, our own U.S. embassy has been under threat in Guatemala uh, to the point that they've received credible terrorist threats uh, in the country um, uh, that are emanating from from terrorist groups. So it, it's not something that's unknown to our authorities, and they're very uh, they just don't know exactly how to deal with it because the magnitude and the size of the problem uh, is large. And, and again, you know, everything we talk about on this show, you know, a little bit outside the scope of your focus, but just immigration and the courts and the magnets and all the all the magnets that we have for general Central American migration, that is the perfect cover, the same way it's a cover for the drug crisis and MS-13. It's a cover for these Middle Easterners and that whole economy, that whole corridor that's created from the Middle East through places like Colombia and Venezuela, on through Nicaragua, up to Guatemala. Um, because we have the border patrol dealing with, let's say, fifty to seventy thousand of bogus asylum, you know, claims a month from the Northern Triangle. Well, if I want to put in five hundred, a thousand SIAs, it's a lot easier to do it then than if you didn't have any magnet for that, and the border patrol was exclusively dealing with, um, you know, the concerns of terrorism. And and obviously the SIA. So I mean, this is this is huge, which is why I wanted to discuss the next next link in the chain, Nicaragua. There's a lot of news there, a lot of civil unrest with Daniel Ortega, who is always a long time Marxist leader there for for over a decade, um, and he, you know, he's persecuting the Catholics there. Uh, lots of you know protests taking place. What's going on there? Why should we care? Who's behind it? And how does this tie back into immigration? Well, um, so far what we've been talking a lot about is some of the pull factors that are being done both through U.S. policy, through the smugglers and the traffickers, and, and all the pull factors that have been taking uh, you know, illegal migrants and, and, and SIAs and others uh, from Latin America up into the U.S. through, through these illegal border crossings. The pull, the push factors, to me, are equally, if not more important. And beyond, you know, the societal problems that all, some of these countries have, that we're about to enter a phase where the push factors, the levels of instability in these countries, 
is going to reach levels that we haven't seen in Latin America, probably in the history of the region, probably levels that we've only seen in places like Africa and the Middle East uh, with wars and, and civil wars and strife and all kinds of uh, conflict going on. Now, Nicaragua is uh, the next uh, country that's on that list. Venezuela obviously had tremendous amount of civil strife since 2014. It really picked up last year. But Nicaragua, uh, the amount, so I'll give you just a kind of c- comparative perspective between Venezuela and Nicaragua. It took about six to seven months last year for Venezuela to total, uh, for, the, for the Venezuelan opposition elements and the students to total about 160 deaths in about seven months uh, from the government repression that was happening in Venezuela in the earlier part of last year. About seven months, pretty much the first half of the year. In Nicaragua, it's taken three months to, to total more than 350 deaths. So double the amount of deaths in half the amount of time. It's accelerating at a rate that, that, that caught a lot of people by surprise, including myself. And, and this isn't, this isn't uh, by coincidence. I mean, these are two countries that are snapping to one another. It's, it, they, they, call, they have a name. They're called the Bolivarian Alliance. It's Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Bolivia, and, and, and Ecuador, who's, who's looking to be a bit more of a transition. But Nicaragua and Venezuela are two countries that have cooperated over the last decade in, in, in every level of facet of government and non-government support. What I'm particularly worried about in Nicaragua is the foreign meddling, the same as we talked about in Venezuela, the Iranian-Russian-Chinese uh, coercion that's taking place all throughout Latin America. And in the case of the Russians, which has hit a lot of the press uh, recently, you know, particularly with you know the the the, the conference and Helsinki and you know President Trump's statements and everything like that. And you wrote a great column, David. I think I could commend you on the column that you that you published recently, talking about how to deal with Russia the right way. Which is if you if you are concerned about Putin and if you are concerned about Russian foreign meddling. Uh, in 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 the West, I think there's no place that you need to look closer than in Nicaragua. And bingo, Venezuela. bingo! I wanted to tee you up for it, and 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 you did it perfectly. I just wanted to pause you for ten seconds there, yeah, um, to 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 hit this out of the park. I just saw a tweet from the Secretary of State, you know, Mike Pompeo, basically to the effect that we are never going to recognize Russia's takeover of Crimea, and and there's a lot of infighting politically on the right here. You know, between people that are like, look, we're exaggerating the threat to Russia. You know, he just wants his regional stuff. Maybe I wouldn't have agreed with it to begin with, but I don't want to go to war with them over over uh, Crimea. I don't care about Syria. You're in fact saying, and this is what I tried to allude to quoting you in this article, that in our own freaking hemisphere related to our own border migration problems, Russia is not minding their own region and wants their own business. They're fomenting the problems in our own backyard. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And they're doing it in lockstep with Iran and China. I mean, the three countries are moving uh, uh, in, in, in a level of strategic engagement and cooperation that, that, that I don't I mean, I, I'd say it rivals anywhere else in the world, to be honest. So let me give you let me give your listeners kind of a, a quick timeline to, so they get the sense of how Nicaragua's uh, evolved or de- actually uh, devolved from it states, so 2007, a gentleman named Daniel Ortega became president. He was an old Sandinista revolutionary in the 80s, and so he had ties to the Soviet Union back then. So he becomes president in 2007. He's still president to this day, so he's been pretty much a dictator for the last decade. In 2003, immediately Russia starts to reengage in, 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 in conversations with Daniel Ortega. In 2013, uh, they stand up this counter-narcotics facility, which to me is, is, is an irony and a hypocrisy <laughs> in it itself because – Nicaragua has been t- the Nicaraguan regime has been tied to drug trafficking, and we all know that uh, Putin and the Russian mob is tied to to uh, illicit illicit activity all over the world. So 
uh, Russia's drug czar, uh, Viktor Ivanov, shows up in Nicaragua and he inaugurates this facility in 2013. The following year, no less a senior figure than G- General Valery Gerasimov, the chief of staff of the armed forces of Russia, shows up in Nicaragua repeatedly throughout the years, which caused the alarm of a lot of na- our, our, our intelligence officials because he's not an individual that just shows up in countries, particularly halfway around the world in, in, a, in a small country uh, such as Nicaragua. Where he, and then that same year, Sergei Shogi, who's now the actual, who was a defense minister at the time and now is in, in the armed, head of the armed forces as well, uh, also shows up. So senior level officials of uh, Russia have been showing up in Nicaragua for at least the last five to six years. And they've engaged a, a series of strategic projects. We're talking about runways, canals, uh, military armament, counter-narcotic facilities, satellite tracking stations. These aren't low-range projects. For just so you listeners get, Nicaragua is the second poorest country in Latin America, in in the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere. Or Haiti is the only poor country. And I've heard some figures that they might have actually overtaken Haiti. It might be the poorest country. So, so for Russia to engage in this level of cooperation with a country that has no money and really has no no ability to, to operate at their level, it's 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 a lot more serious than just a simply propaganda. And so the Russians have pretty much created a satellite state here in, in Nicaragua at a time now where the country's completely collapsing, just like Venezuela, and we're going to see the refugee syndrome uh, exacerbate in, in that wow. country. Wow. Uh, well, wait. I mean, I, I, it's funny. Even until you just said it now, it didn't seep into me. You know, Venezuela is a little bit farther south. This is literally the next rung where, you know, we're all having this national discussion over Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. This is right below it. So, I mean— this this exact same way they come already. If you have Nicaragua collapse, meaning if I'm the Russians and I want to subvert America, this is an awesome play. That's absolutely, and, and and it's not it's not the final play. This is just the second step. I mean, the next country to pop is going to be Bolivia. Now that's all the way further south. But the the, the point of it is, it's not just the the migration is a, is a consequence of that. I, I completely believe that the refugee outflows is the goal to be able to move more refugees because not only can they move terrorists. But they can do clandestine networks, which is how most of these uh, kind of quasi-criminalized states operate. But the, 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 the thrux of it is, is the goal is to destabilize Latin America in the same manner that they destabilize the Middle East. The same way they destabilize Syria, Yemen, uh, um, even Turkey now, uh, is the same way that they're destabilizing Latin America to delegitimize the United States. The only difference is they're doing it very, very close to our border, which, which should uh, drive uh, somewhat level of a priority on foreign policy, but it still hasn't yet. Still hasn't yet, and and that's what I want to come to. You know, for the central philosophical focus we always have here on this show at Conservative Review. You know, understanding you know foreign policy and domestic policy from a conservative perspective, you have you know pretty respected figures on the more populist right, um, of which we have a lot in the audience uh, from people like Tucker Tucker Carlson, where he says. Look, you know, it's all about immigration and borders. I don't care about this foreign policy stuff, Putin, Russia. Let's stop bothering him and let's mind our own business. But I guess what you're saying is it it ties together. You could debate Syria. You could debate Yemen, Crimea, whatever. But, you know, if you care about immigration, um, you got to see you got to stop it at its source. And they're downright fomenting the source. My concern is watching Pompeo, watching Bolton, and I like them. I, I'm not, I'm not seeing an impetus to to you know push some sort of Monroe doctrine. 
to really focus on this. Well, the problem with that is that I think Latin America for several decades, I'd say in the 80s, you can argue maybe we had a bit of a concerted effort on Latin America because of the Iran-Contra affair and because of the Sandinistas, actually the same, same Nicaragua uh, situation, but the Reagan administration was kind of drew a red line when it turned to the exportation of communism. Um, but that was, so 30 plus years ago would be the last time we had a real policy on Latin America. Since then, it's just been a vacuum. Uh, the U.S. is engaged on bilateral levels, even some multilateral levels, but mostly in trade and some security cooperation, but it hasn't prioritized the region. And 9-11 completely changed, you know, definitely moved us further away uh, from the region. And, and so what happens is you're playing, the, the U.S. government is playing a lot of catch up. They're trying to understand the historical dimensions. They're trying to understand the cultural dimensions. They're trying to rebuild networks, both intelligence networks and also uh, economic networks. And they're really reestablishing relations. There is an opportunity to do some good, though. I mean, a lot of these countries, if you had tried this maybe, I'd say, seven, eight years ago, there was a lot more countries in Latin America that were uh, antagonizing the United States as opposed to now. Now you have you've had a swing to the right in, in the political uh, trajectories in the region that could actually provide a lot of opportunities. And there are some good news, I mean, on a very tactical level. But for example, we speak a lot about Iran and Hezbollah on your show, uh, uh, Daniel. And, and, and you know, I just want to mention that Argentina, which is you know yes, very far yes. away from, from Mexico, Argentina just did its first government action on its own against Hezbollah. They froze the uh, bank accounts of 14 uh, Hezbollah members that are operating in and around their country, which to me is a tremendous effort. And this is one step to leading to designating Hezbollah as a foreign terrorist organization in Latin America. And, and I absolutely believe the only way that was possible was because the Trump administration gave signals to the Argentine government that we, we, we green light you going after Hezbollah because the last administration gave the reverse signals to stay away from Iran Hezbollah because we're trying to negotiate something with them. So, you know, the Latin American countries, a lot of them will follow the U.S. lead if the U.S engages. Now, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see President Trump understand the strategic relevance and importance of Latin America as it relates to all the challenges throughout the world and, and come up with something of a Trump doctrine. It doesn't, it, the Monroe Doctrine, okay, for all intents and purposes, maybe it's dead, maybe it's different. Who knows? I mean, I know uh, Secretary of State, the former Secretary of State uh, um, um, under Obama, and I'm drawing a blank Kerry. right now. Uh, Kerry, exactly. K Kerry had a famous speech where he said the Monroe Doctrine is dead. So let's just, okay, take uh, Secretary Kerry at his word. Well, let's create a Trump doctrine. And the Trump doctrine should do with prioritizing the Americas, uh, uh, not just Latin America, but the entire Americas from Canada down to Argentina, and making sure that he draws red lines on things like Venezuela and Nicaragua and absolutely Mexico, the way that Putin and the Ayatollahs and, and everybody else draws red lines when it comes to their borders. Sure, sure. And, and what are some ways we do that? So, you know, you have Macri in Argentina, as you know, doing good stuff. And I want to have you back another time to talk about that and Nisman and, you know, the the, the, the whole uh, uh, just effort to, to unearth what went on there and, and uh, discover mm -hmm. the truth and Iran's uh, role in that. But um, what do you do with countries like Venezuela and Nicaragua, Russia setting up shop there? Um, we don't have, obviously, any friendlies to work with in a place like Nicaragua. How do we counter them? Well, first thing I think we have to do is we have to get a proper threat assessment. I don't think we have that. The threat assessment has to be as detailed and as intricate as understanding the narratives that are being pushed in, in these countries and how they're manipulating. These countries don't have the military capabilities to threaten the United States. So everything they're going to be doing is going to be done on an asymmetric level. And when you talk about asymmetric warfare, the center of gravity 
as uh, military leaders like to call, is public opinion and political legitimacy. So we have to isolate them and contain. That's the, that's the only strategy. It's a containment strategy to isolate Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Bolivia to make sure that their, their uh, chaos and their instability stays constrained to within their country. We can't have that spilling all over the region because then it becomes uh, untenable for the U.S. And I think a lot of that has to do with basically establishing our allies in the region to, 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 to promote the right narrative. And, and, and that's where you're seeing everything kind of all mixed up because the Brazilians are saying one thing, the Chileans another thing, the Argentines another, the Colombians, the Mexicans, the Guatemalans. I mean, they're not on the same page. Now, there is some effort to do that on Venezuela, but it, it's a bit misguided. So I think the first thing we have to do is we have to think uh, containment. The other thing I think we have to do is we have to kind of break out of these sort of, sort of utopias that the United States could somehow save these countries. Uh, you know, it <laughs> took uh, 20 years to do what they did in Venezuela. It took uh, just as long as not longer to do what they did in Nicaragua. They're not, we're not going to come and save these countries. We're not going to. So I, uh, recently, a friend of mine is a very prominent person in the opposition in Venezuela asked me, you know, what if the Marines just showed up and landed on the beach Normandy style and just, you know, removed the regime? And I, I actually told her we would lose. And it, and, it, and, it, and it's a shock to her. She said, you know, how, what do you mean we would lose? How, how can the U.S. lose to Venezuela? And I said, because. If you measure this on a kinetic force, yeah, you know, military to military, we, we would wipe, wipe the planes. But these guys aren't going to fight us with tanks and planes and bombers and bullets. They're going to fight us asymmetrically by delegitimizing our presence, similar to how they did in Vietnam, how they did in Iraq. They're going to make it look like the U.S. is the, the, the colonizer, the new form of colonization. And we will probably fall for all those traps and we will probably lose to the point that we will never be able to do anything in Latin America ever again, much like how the Middle East is looking uh, these days. So I, I mentioned that I said when it comes to asymmetric strength, we are, the United States is not the strongest power in the world. That's why we have to build networks. That's why we have to build uh, alliances. But those alliances have to be built off carrots and sticks because, frankly, some of the countries are, are, are wrestling with their own situation. So that, that, in, in a nutshell, I'm saying the bottom line is that we have to contain those countries, Venezuela and Nicaragua, and make sure that their crises don't get exported throughout the region, which is that's what they're trying to do. Uh, they're trying to essentially move all the refugees from Venezuela to Colombia, from Nicaragua to Guatemala, and create these pockets of uh, chaos that uh, provokes the United States to get involved so that they can further manipulate and say that we are the aggressors in this situation. Wow, certainly a lot packed in there. I know you got to go now. It's never enough time with you, um, but yeah. we'll certainly have you, have you back on again. Thanks so much. Absolutely, Daniel. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Joseph Humeyer of the Center for Secure Free Society. And yeah, I mean, that, that was just awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. Um, you know, Joseph is literally one of my best guests. He is just always a wellspring of information. Um, he doesn't even realize sometimes how, 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 many, uh, how many new things he's saying that you know, might be old to him but are like really important. I'm saying, hey, oh, wait, wait, stop right there. Um, let me know if you have any other questions for him and I can ask him. But I mean, these are the discussions that we don't have in the movement. Kind of you know, bring this full circle to how we started the show. We don't have a movement that is able to do this. I mean, there's nothing about this past half hour that should even be partisan, should even be conservative. This is something I think almost anyone could appreciate. And here we tied in Russia and immigration, two of the biggest issues, into an issue that doesn't sound so sexy and is often forgotten you know, the unrest in Latin America that people aren't even aware of in places like Nicaragua and um, Venezuela. But 
how that is the linchpin of both those issues. That is the linchpin of what is truly in our interest to combat and what we're not focusing on. And, and this notion, most people don't even realize that when you have a massive surge in bogus asylum, there's an entire ready-made industry with all the players in the background to subvert that. Russia, China, Hezbollah, to bring in Middle Easterners through that environment. The same way we've explained the drug crisis for so long, that's how you're going to have a growing problem of SIAs. And we're not even going to realize the extent of this problem until we start seeing bombs go off in our, in our country from these operatives. Now, like anything else, you know, a lot of them could be just you know, seeking uh, free health care or something like that, escaping the Middle East. Um, but you better believe that with that vulnerability, the bad guys are going to exploit it to bring in really bad people. And this is the problem. I, I have very few people with whom to, to speak policy. I, I was speaking with a friend of mine who quit his job at the Texas Public Policy Institute because he became a cesspool for open borders, uh, uh, soft on crime, and uh, now being weak on Obamacare. And you know he's trying to find just freelance work, really smart guy, one of the top guys in this business. And... We're just lamenting. We don't have anyone to talk to, to speak immigration with, to speak healthcare with, national security, the courts. We don't have an agenda. You know, everyone's like, well, the country's a certain way. There's nothing we can do. I don't think so. I think if we had a movement making this case and focusing on the issues we focus on, I think people would care and they'd side with us. Certainly don't know until you try. So that's where we stand now. Um, but uh, I'm telling you, with, 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 with immigration in the courts, the courts are, are incentivizing this entire cascading effect of ills from drugs and gangs to you know, MS-13 and, and the Middle Easterners and empowering Russia's subversion in Latin America with their rulings that serve as a magnet. You know, speaking of Middle Easterners, there was another judge, an Obama judge this week. I can't even keep track of all these cases where he prevented – DHS from or DOJ from denaturalizing a terrorist from Pakistan. Now, normally, you know, once you have citizenship, you're you're an American, and we can't treat you like an immigrant, um, and we can't deport you. But there is one exception to that: if we could show that you are that you lied to get citizenship, that you were naturalized under um, false pretenses. In the sense that you did not have good character. Now, look. Sometimes, you know, let's say someone you know engages in petty theft. You can't say, well, you know, it proves that at the time, you know, you really shouldn't have been a citizen. But certainly, if you're a terrorist, it's not something that just happens a few years after you're naturalized. That's clear that you should never have been a citizen, and we absolutely could denaturalize you. Now, yes, it, unlike every other facet of immigration, like deportation of a non-citizen. This does require due process, but the guy had full due process, and the court still blocked it. So this is this is a growing problem. You know, we have all these uh, clever ways of owning the liberals. You know, even even at CRTV, you know, our sister company, um, kudos to Ali Stuckey, a viral video where she had this mock um, interview with Cortez, this socialist uh, star. 
who who defeated an incumbent Democrat in the Bronx. And um, it, it's it's great. It's 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 effective. But I'm I'm saying just watching. I'm thinking the sad thing is her policies are being actualized in government, often through our own party being complicit in it, and we don't have a movement to recognize where it's being done and how to combat it. And having some sort of legislative policy agenda, all-encompassing agenda, to use every legislative focal point, every budgetary focal point, and every element of the news cycle to promote our agenda rather than responding to what the left wants to use the news cycle for. And that's the thing, you know, with Russia. You want to talk about Russia? Okay, let's talk about getting them out of Latin America. Let's talk about missile defense and nuclear capabilities. And let's talk about... um, Foreigners meddling in our elections, a.k.a. foreigners voting. All three issues we've dealt with. Imagine if we had a movement pushing this. And by the way, I do want to um, just push with you guys, just give a shout out to Congressman Jeff Duncan, uh, represents our homeland, or one of our main offices in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. He's a congressman from there. The Uplands area. So he put he just introduced a bill, of course we'll never see the light of day, to defund, just like we defund sanctuary cities, included in that, it often overlaps, but if it doesn't, if they're a city that allows non citizens to vote. They could do that, but we could also not give them, you know, various grant programs either. Of course, until the courts get involved. So I don't know if it has a bill number yet. I don't have it readily available. It might not have a bill number, but um, you know, there it is. So a lot going on. Support our sponsors, purple.com, purple mattresses. Till next time, God bless y'all. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience.